Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Today, November 10th, marks our fifth birthday. Our first program went out in 2011. The guests were artist Chris Burden and Kristen Heilman, the contemporary curator at the Baltimore Museum of Art. We've done 261 shows since then, which is kind of astonishing. And I'm grateful to all of you for continuing to allow me to do something I find enjoyable and rewarding. Special thanks to Wilson Butterworth, who has edited the program since the early days, to the 22 art museums that have advertised on the show, and to the dozens of wonderfully helpful folks in communications, programs, and other art museum and publishing company departments that have helped us get this thing out every week. If you'd like to wish us a happy birthday, please consider telling a friend or three about the show and give us a review on iTunes. That'll help more people find us. This week, we spotlight two exhibitions that look at two different post-World War II educational models. First, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego's The Uses of Photography, Art, Politics, and the Reinvention of a Medium, which looks at the students and faculty at the University of California, San Diego, a university effectively built to fuel the defense industrial complex. Then, Leap Before You Look Black Mountain College, now at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. Our show will feature three guests, Jill Dawsey, the curator of the MCASD exhibition, Martha Rossler, whose work is included in that show, and Ruth Erickson, who assisted curator Helen Molesworth on Leap Before You Look and who wrote about Black Mountain's educational program in the show's catalog. The Uses of Photography examines artists affiliated with UCSD as faculty and students between the 1960s and 80s and the ways in which they open photography to a range of conceptual strategies and subjects. It's on view through January 2nd, 2017. The show features about 100 works and demonstrates how artists such as David Anton, Eleanor Anton, Martha Rossler, Lorna Simpson, Fel Steinmetz, Carrie Mae Weems, and Alan Capro introduced contemporary social issues, humor, and fresh ideas into a new kind of photographic-centric artistic practice. The outstanding exhibition catalog was published by MCASD in association with the University of California Press. Amazon offers it for about 45 bucks. Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, is at the Wexner through January 1st next year. It looks at the legacy of Black Mountain, an experimental, interdisciplinary, and immensely influential liberal arts college in the mountains of western North Carolina. The school attracted faculty and students from all over the world at a time when World War II was forcing significant global emigration, and thus provided a place where questions of globalism and the role of the artist in society were considered and furthered. Erickson, who will join us to discuss the show, is a curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. First up, Jill Dawsey, after the break. The exhibition, The Shape of Things, Photographs from Robert B. Menchel, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Borrowing its title from a work by Carrie Mae Weems, this engaging survey is drawn entirely from works acquired over the past 40 years with the support of Robert B. Menchel and tells the story of photography from its beginnings. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hirshhorn, visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. 
And we're back. Jill Dawsey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. The history your show tells and presents strikes me as one of the primary ways and geographies, if you will, that photography and conceptual art came together in the late 1960s and then, you know, stayed together. To my mind, and I could be wrong about this, in other places where photography and conceptual practice got together, whether that's in San Francisco or Amsterdam or wherever else, photography was kind of a wincing left-handed necessity rather than a co-equal partner in the thing, whereas in San Diego, photography is a full partner. Is that fair? Is that one of the things that made San Diego and, and the UC San Diego group special? Yes, I think so. It's it's true that for the artists who were active here in San Diego between the late 60s and into the 1980s, they are all working within a conceptual framework, and they are looking to new formats and media that would be adequate to address their historical moment and its pressing questions. So there's an emphasis on, on politics, on social consciousness in the work, and also they attend deeply to questions of photography. Photography is thematized and foregrounded and questioned in the works in the show. And and for certain artists, and you named the San Diego group, which is composed of of Martha Rosler, Alan Sakula, Fred Lonadier, and Fel Steinmetz. And, and there were others in the group, but these are the key members. They were deeply engaged with photography and its history, particularly American traditions that go back to the 19th century and 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 rethinking in particular these documentary traditions. But but I think all of the artists in the show are are both using photography and 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 questioning it, just as they are questioning conceptual art itself makes sense given California's history in, in, in nowhere in America is photography more more used to examine social, cultural, and historical presence, going back to Carlton Watkins in Yosemite or Dorothea Lange in the Central Valley or Perkle Jones north of San Francisco. I mean, we could go on and on. So what is the historical moment to which this group at UC San Diego is responding, both both within American history, but maybe also within the specific history of, of California and their own university. So it's it's the late 1960s, and many of these artists are arriving in San Diego. A lot of them are, are coming here from New York. A couple are already here, but it is you know it's a it's a moment of intense activism, and and San Diego is. A deeply conservative city. It's it's the the home of a naval base and an aerospace uh, industry. It's it's you know a site of the military industrial complex. It's you know these are the defining characteristics of of this place. And yet there is an intense leftist movement and and you know new social movements across the board. But particularly in this show, we see activism surrounding the Vietnam War and and feminism in particular. Do you have a, a favorite example of, of, say, somebody in the show whose art specifically addresses those two things, things that maybe jump out as typical or particularly acute engagements? Well, maybe I can offer a couple different works, but Fred Lonadier's piece, 29 Arrests, um, I think is, is a particularly interesting piece. It's it's a work that, that was made 
1972, and you know the title "29 Arrests" names what takes place in in the 30 photographs that comprise the piece. The first photograph is the is the title. Lanadier was present at an anti-war protest at the naval headquarters in downtown San Diego, and he photographs the arrests of of 29 young people who are paraded before the police cameras. And and one thing that's significant about the work, I think, is that it inhabits this conceptual framework. The 29 arrests seem to make reference to Ed Ruscha's 26 gasoline stations. And so in this way, uh, Lanadier offers a, a retort to Ruscha, you know, and the seeming kind of neutrality and, and deadpan indifference of, of, of that brand of conceptual art and instead substitutes political urgency. But there's there are other interesting things going on in the work because Lanadier shoots over the shoulders of the police officers who are photographing each of the arrestees. And and, and so and if I could just make that plainer for a second. The photographs, the, those shoulders are literally in the pictures. <laughs> yes, as are the kind of domed helmets of, of the police officer who is, you know, making Polaroid photographs, booking photographs of these um, young people as they are being put on a bus that's bound for jail. So he is pointing to, you know, he's not... Lanadier is not only using photography himself, he's pointing to the use of photography on the part of police and the way in which it is a, you know, a, a tool of coercion. Yet despite this coercive situation, the arrestees in the photographs are, are smiling and giving peace signs and, and, and it becomes clear that they are engaging, you know, with Fred as, as Fred Lanadier as a photographer and that there's this kind of chain of counter publicity that's set up and, Benjamin Young does a really nice reading of of this work in in the catalog for the show, and and in a sense, you know, it's it's they are interacting not just with with Lana Deer, but with with us as as viewers, and so it's another level at which the work is operating. One of the interesting things about the the beginning of, of UCSD's art school in this period is that it can be kind of hard to tell who's who's a student and who's faculty and when. How much does that matter here and how much is that kind of I don't know anarchical isn't quite the right word but the, the, you know a certain fluidity important to the place and the work and the time. It is important and I and I think y yeah I in many ways, I didn't differentiate between who was faculty and who was a graduate student. And the show does not attempt to demonstrate clear lineages or or uh, or in you know influence in any direct way, because I think influence goes in in many directions. And it's this moment in which you know education takes many forms. And and the San Diego group, to use that group before as an example, is you know, composed of two graduate students and two junior faculty members. And so students are, are learning from their professors in, in a traditional sense, and, and teachers are learning from their students. So, you know, it, it, there is this kind of non-hierarchical and leveling ethos at the university at this moment. And, it, you know, UCSD is, is a very interesting place at this time because you have people like Herbert Marcuse, who is an active mentor of many activists. Um, Angela Davis is his graduate student and is very present on campus. Frederick Jameson has established his, has started his his Marxist literary group, which Martha, Martha Rosler and Alan Sakura 
school are attending. And, and education takes place in, in a lot of different ways, and it's not even confi confined to the university itself. You know, people are going to consciousness raising groups, and these take place off campus. And I know it's, it's important to this group as well, the multiple the film screenings that happen on campus, impromptu meetings and organized meetings, protests. There, there are so many different ways in which information and knowledge is being exchanged this, at this time. So one of the things we take for kind of granted in today's art world is a certain multidisciplinary intermedia, throw everything into the blender and, and whatever comes out is fine approach to art. You see SD is one of the places where that kind of started. So in, in, in the context of there, what was Intermedia and how did San Diego's interest in it as an area of emphasis compare to what other places were doing at the time? Intermedia means a lot of things. I mean, the show focuses on photography, but photography is a hybrid thing. You know, these artists are, are making books, they're making postcards, they're making videos and films and text and image installations. So there's many things that the photography can be. And performance is is a key a key part of the intermedia seen at UCSD and, and artists using photography to capture fleeting actions and performances. You asked me about how it compares to other places in California. You know, I know that that UCSD, photography, I guess what I would want to say is that photography had been separate for so long. I mean, it had taken a long time to find acceptance in the art world. And and even, you know, at the College Art Association, you know, it, it wasn't really accepted. They set up the Society of Photographic Education as you know, this kind of separate entity. And a lot of the artists at UCSD are, are involved there. You know, speaking of, of intermedia, you argued in your catalog essay that Eleanor Anton's now famous 100 Boots series, which is combination postcard by mail project, combination photographic project, conceptual project, sculpture project in a way. You argued that, that 100 Boots is a good stand-in for the relative isolation of, of, of the school and these artists at this place and time, which was interesting because that hadn't occurred to me because San Diego's close to LA and and all that. But you made a pretty good argument for for how that series made plain their isolation. Why did that isolation matter? How did it help? Well, I think it it granted a certain freedom to experiment. Eleanor Anton said that, you know, there was this sense that nobody was looking, nobody was paying attention to what they were doing. But, it, you know, you bring up 100 Boots, and I think all of these artists were in dialogue with the New York art world, but, you know, they, they wanted to have a, some distance from it. And they were also looking for alternative venues, alternative modes of production. This is one reason they turned to photography, which can be so many things. It can be a postcard that is sent out in the mail and that completely circumvents the, the gallery and museum system. You know, and then you have people like Fred Lonadier, who for many years is showing his work both in the art world, but also in union halls and recreation centers and alternative spaces. His work, you know, has, has dealt with questions of labor for a long time. Uh, Martha Rosler produces postcards as well. And, and so there's this sense that, yeah, that a different kind of experimentation can take place and, and that something else is going on in San Diego, you know, this, this military town, this, this deeply conservative town that, you know, that they kind of 
can be at a distance from the mainstream art world. You also argue in your catalog essay that a number of these artists over over a period of, you know, several decades reopened the idea of what documentary photography can be, what it can do, who and what it can address. Do you have a couple favorite examples of, of how this group kind of reopened documentary practice? You know, there's a there's a photograph by Felstein that's that we reproduce in the catalog, and it's it's a photograph that was it hung on the darkroom door at UCSD for several decades, I'm told, and and this photograph features Fred Lonadier and Alan Sakula, who are directing these very defiant facial expressions and also very rude hand gestures at Steinmetz, who is sitting before them on a bed. And they've got their photography gear with them, their tripods. And Steinmetz writes underneath the photograph, as he often did. He, he often wrote directly on the surface of his photographs or, or underneath them. He writes, some like to photograph some like to be photographed, few like both, many neither. And I think even if we don't know that it's Londier and Sakula, we might gather that uh, given that they have their cameras and, and equipment with them, that they are, you know, in the, in the few like both category. But it sort of serves as this kind of cautionary tale, perhaps to students who were using the dark room to, you know, who might unwittingly train their their cameras on on the camera shy you know it it there's there's kind of a a, a lesson here or a kind of distillation of i think what what is one of the key insights of the San Diego group which concerns the uneven social exchange that is the point of origin for many photographs. And if we think about a very well-known work of art, Martha Rosler's The Bowery and Two Inadequate Descriptive Systems, in many ways, you know, that is a work that, you know, in its refusal to picture its ostensible subjects, uh, the Bowery bums of Skid Row, you know, it refuses to kind of define and confirm, you know, what are kind of unstable subject positions, our half and the other half and middle class and underclass self and other. There's this there's this kind of understanding of the power differential in the person taking the photograph and the person whose photograph is being taken and also the 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 kind of understanding that there's a, a negotiation that's that's taking place there when someone's taking a picture of another person. The other body of work that comes to mind when I think of how artists in San Diego both kind of evolved documentary practice, but then also did so in a way that led to the next 30 years of their career is Carrie Mae Weems's work. And, and maybe a good example is the SE, as in Southeast San Diego, series from the very early 1980s. This is a body of work. It's composed of 21 images, and we have it on view in its entirety for the first time since it was created. And Karen Weems is an interesting um, case because she's working in a more traditional mode of street photography as an undergraduate. She's been taking pictures for, for many years, and she comes to UCSD at the rec recommendation of Ulysses Jenkins, who was uh, teaching video at UCSD for a brief time, and he says, why don't you go and check out what's going on there? And, and so she does. And, and interestingly, she, she meets Fred Lonadier, and he's very influential for her, for her practice and talks to her about her work. And, you know, she says to him at some point, you know, that she feels a picture is worth, is worth a, a thousand words. And, and 
Lana Dare says to her, well, which thousand words are you talking about? And and she said that, you know, she was disturbed by this and it really got under her skin, but it eventually led her to the decision to begin, you know, sort of supplementing her work using with with language, using using text to expand upon photographic meaning. And so in the Southeast San Diego series, which is a neighborhood that at the time was primarily an African-American neighborhood and and Weems is in grad school at UCSD in La Jolla, which is a very elite enclave. And so she begins, you know, seeking out other spaces and other communities where she feels at home. And so she starts spending a lot of time in Southeast San Diego and gets to know people there and begins taking portraits. And, you know, in in most cases, she, there are a few photographs that kind of stand on their own, but in most cases, there's a, a text that accompanies the work and, and that kind of foregrounds her role as photographer and, and describes the exchange that she had with the sitter. And I think in some cases, these are kind of fictionalized because Weems is somebody who's really interested in storytelling and folklore, but they, they, they foreground that negotiation that I was talking about before. And, uh, you know, and in many ways, this is her first major body of work. It's made in 1982 and 1983. Finally, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is that this is one of the earlier places where artists are are playing with and being taught and beginning to use video. Who instigated that? How? And, you know, slightly hilariously, where? <laughs> Well, David Anton, the poet and art critic, was a very important figure for this constellation of artists, both because he was chair of the department. He arrived in 1968 and is running the art gallery and then becomes chair of the department. And he's he's influential in, in that capacity. And also for the talk poems, the, the kind of improvisational performative monologues that he developed at the time. But the story that I think you're referring to is is one in which Anton gets together a group of, of grad students because they want to learn video and and these are early days and and you know they had to make do with with what was available and the only place that you know video was being used and 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 really taught was in the medical school and specifically in the basement of the medical school where autopsies were performed and videotaped for teaching purposes so Anton gets together this group which included Rosler and others and they go down to to uh, hang out with the cadavers and 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 learn video and that's how it gets incorporated into the curriculum at UCSD very early on <laughs> that's that's pretty ridiculous is there any video work that you have in the show that that you think is a good example of the kinds of ways in which students and or faculty for that matter were beginning to use the thing yeah, Eleanor Anton's body of work called Caught in the Act is is it comprises still photographs as well as as video. And um and this is a piece this is made in 1973 and it it's actually an expansive work but but it it pits still photography against video in interesting ways and it's one of the earliest pieces in which Anton appears as as in one of her personas, her Eleonora Antonova, the prima ballerina, 
And in the still photographs, you see her performing a series of classical ballet positions and, you know, she pulls it off. But in the video, you see a very different picture where she is uh, faltering and fumbling again and again. And and, um, at one point she calls for help and a character named Help played by Fred Lonadier, um, proffers the end of a broomstick so that she can balance. And and Fel Steinmetz is the photographer who's who's snapping her pictures. And so she, you know, she achieves kind of momentary composure and balance. And then she says, go. And that's when Steinmetz uh, snaps the picture. And so, you know, you see the way in which, you know, the still photographs extract a single moment in time to the exclusion of a larger context. Yeah, and there's and when you when you say that Fel Steinmetz is the photographer, he's also the photographer within the work, but also the photographer of of the stills of the ballerina. This moment that is both very Moybridgean, but also very kind of Gene Kelly singing in the rain, um, in its in its reflexivity, its self reflexivity. Yeah, and Steinmetz collaborated with Anton on many of her of her projects, One Hundred Boots, which we discussed earlier, and and many others. And 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 he was a great photographer. I mean, I think he's he's not he's not as well known as he should be. His kind of enduring subject was landscape, but particularly the you know the changing landscape of Southern California with with its sprawl and development and car car culture and he has a number of books in the show but in particular there's one called Landscapes which I think is is really an incredible book and and talks about human incursions onto onto the landscape Jill Dazi thanks so much Thank you Tyler The history of the civil rights movement is commonly illustrated with well-known photographs from Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma, leaving the visual story of the movement outside the South remaining to be told. In North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South, a new book from Getty Publications, historian Mark Speltz shines light on images of everyday activists who fought campaigns against segregation, police brutality, and job discrimination in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Visit shop.getty.edu to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision, the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Martha Rossler, an artist who earned her MFA at the University of California, San Diego in 1974 and who taught there thereafter. Martha has exhibited extremely widely all over the world, and her work is in virtually every major American art museum collection. Martha Rossler, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back with you. You did your undergrad years at Brooklyn College, obviously in New York, and then you went out to UC San Diego. How was UC San Diego different from kind of a a, a classic or typical Eastern collegiate experience? It was my idea of the Wild West. They were making it up as they went along, as opposed to the highly institutionalized, extremely 
paranoid attitudes of the admin and uh, of the, the admin of the college I went to, Brooklyn College, and probably every other college on the East Coast, particularly the people's colleges rather than the elite ones. Were you looking for that kind of experience, that kind of make it up as they go along thing? No, I had no idea. I knew the people and I didn't move out there to go to college. So the whole concept was a bit foreign, what they were doing. I did know before I went out there that the reason to go there was exactly the idea of a great new people's university, forward-looking set of institutions, in particular the San Diego version, which was feeling very ambitious about setting up a new model of science, humanities, and general leaping off into the 21st century all the way back then, because, of course, it was the mid-60s when it was founded. It was a science school, and it was thinking about leaping off into outer space, <laughs> figuratively, if not literally. In fact, jumping off into outer space, both in terms of the moon and in terms of, you know, the military-industrial complex. Yes, though we didn't talk about that. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, we talked about that, but they didn't talk about that. That is, that wasn't their recruitment. So I first met up with them at a summer linguistics institute where I was with my partner. And they said, come on aboard. It's going to be great. And that was directed at him. He was in linguistics, uh, as I said. But uh, I saw that this applied also to the art department because I was, we were friends with David and Eleanor Anton. And once they moved out there, everything changed. Oh, how so? Well, David was yet another East Coast intelligence moving to kind of help colonize the West, but not in an aggressive way, but in a vigorous way to set up a department very much along the lines of what he and many other people thought education should be. And it's time to take a minute and say a lot of people in his circle, and I'm not sure if it includes him, were at Black Mountain, yeah. which was before my time. So the model of kind of Cajun rethinking and uh, movement toward the phenomena of everyday life was very important. And that, of course, included Alan Capro, who was part of the circle and who I also knew from those days as a young person in New York. So what I'm saying is that one of the things that attracted me to actually go to school there was that it was a very open, inclusive program that put a large emphasis on thinking for yourself and ignoring disciplinary boundaries. So thinking on the one hand and a kind of multimedia or transmedial relationship to education and art. Did the art school and the art students keep to their own or did they get involved in things like study groups and other activities across the entire school? 
Hawaii didn't think of ourselves as an art school. We were an art department among other departments. We were very much part of other things happening, mostly in the humanities, and again, did not draw disciplinary boundaries. So I was part of the Marxist literary group, which was a largely consisted of Fred Jameson's uh, at Fred Jameson and his visitors from other countries, mostly France, and his students, of course. So taking that idea as, as, as a way into 1973, that was the year in which you staged what I think was your first monumental garage sale. Yes. And it was at UC San Diego's gallery. How did that go? The monumental garage sale was unanticipated by everyone. And my mentor, David Anton, and the guy who had helped persuade me to become a student there at the school was quite supportive, as was Ellie Anton, who was not yet on the faculty, but was a close friend of mine and also a mentor. It was fine with them. The rest of the department was, I think, treating most of what I did with a kind of shock or lack of deep interest. But it attracted the attention of a friend of mine in Lit, Sandy Dykstra, who was a grad student of Herbert Marcuse and was sort of towing the Marcuse line of, of Marcuse's last book, which was all about essentially aestheticism and its relationship to enlightenment and uh, enlightenment in a positive sense. And so there was a big dust up about it and exchanges of letters back and forth about the, this transgressive event. How can you display, let alone sell junk in an art gallery, to which my answer inevitably ran along the lines of, what would you like me to sell in an art gallery? Did you have a sense that that, that little flare up was likely or was it the kind of thing that is unanticipated and thus can be instructive and informative? Well, both. I didn't expect to be attacked by a friend. I didn't expect to be attacked in print with a fairly significant intervention in the school paper because, after all, you know, it's just art. That is, that's not my attitude. That's the attitude of, you know, universities, serious research universities. But in the spirit of the times, of course, Things were not quite as divisive or dismissive as I'm suggesting, but I still didn't expect there to be a negative assault on the whole principle. But actually, it was quite a wonderful thing because it allowed me to explain precisely what about Marcuse's aestheticism and ultimately kind of, oh, I don't know, Hegelian formalism disturbed me. But because it really was about art and value, it was easy for me to make this argument. And there was a tape recorder playing, though I knew that people would barely notice it, even though it was playing loud, a, uh, a section dependent on and directly quoting from the fetishism of commodities section and Marxist capital. You both earned your MFA at UC San Diego and and then taught there. Was there a a, a adjuncted, adjuncted and visiting professor? Right. Was there a large difference in the way you interacted with your instructors as a grad student, and then and then the other way around when when, when you interacted with your students when you yourself were teaching? Well, first of all, I looked like a kid, which a number of my 
students mentioned. <laughs> there, there are a bunch of contemporary photographs of all of you. I don't mean artworks. I mean contemporary snapshots of all of you in the exhibition catalog, and and they're pretty great. <laughs> Mostly by Fred, some by Phil. The the fact is this was the era from the 60s onward of the anti-formalization, anti-authoritarian relationship to the academic hierarchy, the insistence of people in professorial roles, we be called by our first names. I actually had no idea among my closest friends who was actually a grad student and who was an undergrad. Well, not my very closest, but close to them. My group consisted of junior faculty grads and undergrads. And really, I only knew the actual status of a, four people out of a much larger group. And among my students, I had to pay attention during grading, but I was always perplexed about whether the numbers attaching to their identities were undergrad or grad. My classes were large. I taught primarily film, and it both was in extension often and also actual credit-bearing undergraduate classes. So it was a mixture of people from the community, really essentially swamped, though, by the number of undergraduates, because who doesn't want to take a movie class from somebody who often forgot to put her sandals on when she ran down to the front to talk about what was being shown. So the emphasis was on informal but intellectually rigorous. People wrote papers. We had serious discussions. I wouldn't tolerate plagiarism, for example, which was harder to prove in those days. But I'm saying that the students expected there to be standards and they tried to fulfill them. You weren't just taking classes. You weren't just teaching. You were, of course, making work. You made some some pointedly anti-war works in San Diego, most famously the landmark House Beautiful works. Did it matter to you at the time or to the specific condition or creation of those works that you were in what was then, more than now, a, a staunchly military town? Well, did it matter? It mattered. I was an ardent shower-upper at all our anti-war demonstrations. I will say, as a slight historical corrective, that I began these works in New York City, that by and large they were rejected by the more traditionalist members of the faculty. I wound up applying to the school as an abstract painter and was accepted as such, and I always assumed that I would not be rewarded for what I did by the institutions in which I functioned or the town in which I lived. I was pretty much a countercultural person and a leftist. Your, your background at Brooklyn College, for, for one, included uh, Ad Reinhardt, who was, as I recall, one of your teachers there. Yes, though I didn't take a painting class from him. It was, and in fact, I... It was, I audited his Asian art classes because it was such an important way of thinking about what images mean. I did take a painting class in my senior year from Jimmy Ernst, who, as a friend of mine, reminded me fairly recently 
Jimmy ceremonially handed me a pen, which the symbolic significance of that resonated with me. Here's a man handing a phallic object to a woman in recognition of her as an artist. I didn't remember it till he reminded me, but actually it means a lot to me. I thought Jimmy Ernst was great, uh, as was Ed Reinhardt, who I considered to be basically a god. Jill Dawsey's catalog mentions that the House Beautiful works, and I think several others, involved your using a Xerox machine. I don't know if, if Dawsey means that as a capital X Xerox machine or if in the more colloquial sense of the word. Were, were you using early copy machines? or were, were Yeah, the- I, I was. And, of course, I think Xerox machines are the – well, that's how the works got disseminated. Yeah, well, I wasn't sure if it was mimeograph or, you know, whatever no, those – yeah. No, and let me explain why. My father was one of these – how to say this? He was a lawyer who had a very small practice that mostly concentrated on personal injury law, which means he rarely had enough money for a secretary – But I still remember in the must have been mid late 60s when he discovered the Xerox machine and came home and said, this is the greatest thing ever invented. And he was he would have died to be able to own one because, you know, legal briefs needed to be prepared in triplicate or quadruplicate or whatever, which means you had to correct all the carbons if you made an error. So he was he instilled in me a love of the Xerox machine. You know, you just put something down on the glass and presto changeo, you've got another one almost identical. But for me, what this meant is that it allowed me to hand these things out by the numbers at anti-war marches. And the thing is, I think there were even color copies back then, but each one was about a dollar, which was, you know, an unimaginable sum. So I didn't even think of producing them in color. But mimeograph looks tacky. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, I remember it from, from my grade school days. I mean, I imagine, and, and I guess I'm asking, I'm curious if this is how it was, that because you're at a new school, a new university, a new campus, that things like Xerox machines, newfangled machines, were probably somewhat more likely to be there than they were at old Eastern schools. If you saw me, you would see the giant grin on my face. I made, as did we all, I think, a very good use of the openly, freely available Xerox machines that were usually in the hallway outside of departments because people didn't want to breathe whatever toxic fumes there might be until somewhere in the mid-70s, the departments started putting key counters on them. <laughs> So speaking of, of, of works you're making while you're there, while you're in Southern California, backyard economy. So far as I can tell, and it's entirely possible that there are works in which it's impossible to tell, th- that's the only piece you made in San Diego that included the outdoors, the landscape, the contemporary landscape? No, it's the only, it, you know, it's hard for me to think. It's it's the only moving image. There were actually four video, four those are Super 8 films. So there were four of them, and one of them is both San Francisco. No, one of them San Francisco. Sorry, I made three Super 8 films that were essentially landscape films about San Diego. 
two were the backyard economy one and two because you know the the cartridges the super eight cartridges and we're talking super eight film not super eight video were small and one is um flower fields which i hope you'll get the opportunity to see as well which was literally about the stoop labor mostly of mexicans or maybe completely of mexicans and along the highway five growing flowers in beautiful swaths that created kind of rainbow spectrums as you drove past and people when they mentioned them would talk about the beautiful display and of course the display was full of people uh, tending the plants so uh, it's called flower fields and then in parentheses color field painting yeah, they're bright pink fuchsia-colored fields. For some reason, it hadn't occurred to me that those were in California. Yeah, it's actually San Diego, right right near my towns of Lucadia and Encinitas. While you were in, in San Diego, were you consciously interested in making work that engaged the Western landscape tradition? Yes, absolutely. I spent a lot of time actually out on the various so-called reservations and made a lot of photos and wanted to make work about the difference between the Del Mar Fair, which was a really big event, and the rodeos up and never completed the work. I had various mock-ups about it and also about things like driving through the landscape. Uh, And it wasn't quite the new topographics, but we did very much have conversations about so I'm you know I'm stepping back I know you're coming from this kind of heady moment of rediscovering Carlton Eugene Watkins if I get his name right I I do that um, his middle name is under under great dispute among scholars but yes who by the way I'm with you on Watkins. I always showed his work. So I did a lot of teaching about the photographic images of the West, but we were particularly interested, and I say we because this was an important conversation in our little photo-oriented group, about the representations of the West as spaces either of emptiness that became full of good things or spaces of emptiness that got full of bad things and that included, you know, (laughs) suburbia and houses made of ticky-tacky, but also images, in other words, the conceptual images of the landscape and the photographic images that resulted, but also Lewis Baltz's idea of kind of a blank, you know, uh, where we could invoke the idea that, you know, the exterior, a photo of the crop works doesn't tell, you know, I'm paraphrasing doesn't tell you the story of labor inside, labor and exploitation inside. This was actually a very important issue. So my work, I was interested in it. I did take a lot of photos and I've never exhibited the photos I made in the 70s, which I think I I need to point out to you that I'm now editing a manuscript about something else entirely I wrote in the 70s. I'm, I'm one of those people. And I just recently showed the Cuba photos that I took in 1980. So I'm one of those people who's always falling forward until I stumble and say, wait, I ought to take a look backward. The point of my saying this is to say that I wound up doing much more work about things like women and 
cooking and social life and labor involved in the reproduction of the family than I did about landscape. Before I get to some of that work, we were talking about flower fields. There's an untitled Lewis Baltz from almost exactly that same year, 1974, that looks at industrial agriculture and industrial agricultural practice in a way that is even pictorially similar to stills, for example, from from flower fields. And we'll try to have an image of that on manpodcast.com. We started going down this road when I brought up backyard economy, which is this kind of wry, sly commentary on, on Western landscape and labor of the California backyard, particularly as being a space for labor typically done by women. Today, we... And don't forget populated by children, dogs, and laundry. Yeah, well, there's a lot of laundry in the piece. <laughs> You know, in hindsight, we think of, or art historians think of what y'all were doing in, in San Diego in those years as being intensely feminist and as the feminism of the time and of the work as having an impact on on art, not just art made by women, but on art there. At the time in San Diego, could you see feminism working its way into the work the men were doing, the work? all of you were doing? Was it was it just so present that you didn't think about it? Or is that something that we only see after the fact? No, we were very conscious of it. And if you look at, in the show, Fred's piece about looking at women. Fred Lonadier. Fred Lonadier. Yes, that was uh, very much what that was about. And at Phil and Fred's, uh, now Phil, though he was Phil back then, Steinmetz's and Fred Lanadier's urging, we constantly followed the groups of photographers who used the campus as kind of backdrops for photo shoots with young, uh, scantily dressed female models. Uh, really? So, they did that? Yeah, yes, they did. And I'm sure Fred has a lot of pictures of that and certainly Phil does too. And I may even have some. And also young cheerleaders practice there. And I for sure have pictures of those. I think I even took slides of that. So the piece you're talking about, I think, is Girl Watcher Lens. Yes, Which it was is. previously known as um, as pornography. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was because we were constantly being affronted by these guys going through campus. Because, you know, there was a eucalyptus forest that covered much of the campus. Still is, yeah. Well, not compared to what there was, believe me. We had it right outside, right outside our early campus on Camp Matthews, which was an old army base. So we were in the barracks. And actually, I had a Quonset hut, which made life wonderful. And a uh, eucalypti were all around us. This, this piece, Girl Watcher Lens, involved, I don't know if it was the department or the artist or, or who it was, but purchasing a, a, a lens that was marketed to the public as, um, as being called Girl Watcher Lens. Oh, that's so great. I don't remember that. That must be Fred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he bought it. Maybe he bought it. But, apparent, but, but, but it was a, a lens where, you know, in a photo magazine or in a God knows what magazine, you could buy a, a brand name product called Girl Watcher Lens. And so then that's and so he bought it and then and then in in in, in a critique of of the thing that's <laughs> that's what he did with it. 
in more sedate journals, no doubt sold as bird watcher lenses. Right, right, right. And if you were in England, bird watcher would mean girl watcher would mean as both. Well. Yes, you would get the. I I do think that one thing that gets lost, or maybe maybe not lost, forgotten about the art of this period is how funny it all is. First first generation conceptualist practice is hilarious in a way that kind of more modern or more contemporary fourth or fifth generation conceptual practice has forgotten how to be. Well, there were some pretty sober-sided goddamn conceptual artists, but probably not in California. But remember, fun sun culture. So uh, on the one hand, you had all of us New York imports, who, of course, are totally dedicated to sardonic humor. And then we had the fun in the sun people who also were dedicated to fun. So William Wegman and me, just two examples, one of each. Though for all I know, William Wegman is another Jewish transplant from the East, but not just local. But yes, this is important. Imagine that I had to sort of prod people to see that semiotics of the kitchen is funny. Especially years after the fact, people don't realize they can laugh in art galleries. At some point, I realized in screening various works of mine, including that one, that if I sat in the back and giggled every once in a while, people would feel like it was okay to laugh as long as they didn't know it was me laughing. But also, I have to say, I did a video on anorexia called Losing, in which I included some ridiculous laugh-getting lines. Like mother of the, bere the bereaved mother says something like, I have carrots in my mind. I mean, this is, you know, one of those it was intended as one of those unintentionally ridiculous things that people say when they're being interviewed. Like now, who knows what ridiculous <laughs> things I'm saying. Well, hopefully our conversation will will encourage people to have a chuckle next time they see some of some, some of this work. Martha Rossler, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
Welcome back. My final guest is Ruth Erickson, a curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. She assisted Helen Molesworth in curating Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957. Erickson wrote the essays in the catalog that deal with Black Mountain's educational program. Ruth Erickson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Who was John Rice and, and what did he do and why am I bringing him up? John Rice was a classics man. He was a philosopher. He was a rotund and experimental pedagogue who started his academic career at Rollins College in Florida. He became a tenured classics professor there and um, was ultimately fired because of his uncouth and untraditional antics in the classroom, which were largely inspired by an idea of a Socratic dialogue and method and Dewey in that he wanted to have a really active and engaged classroom environment based upon dialogue rather than this idea of a sort of canon of text that needed to be spoken and absorbed by students. And so he's fired in 1933, and with his firing, another group of faculty and students left the school, and he set out to form a different kind of institution, and that institution is Black Mountain College. So he's the founder of Black Mountain College, and he founded it to really set it apart from what he saw were the ills plaguing higher education in the 1930s in America. And trends that he was seeing were starting to happen in higher education that he really wanted to avert and create a different kind of school. One of the ways of, of detailing the difference in, in Rice's method might be to explain how students at Black Mountain could pass from one level to the next level. And it wasn't through the way we all did at our big public universities, you know, by taking a test. I think that he never liked the idea of somebody outside the student, him or herself, dictating education. And so he wanted the education to be a self-driven process. And this related to how students would pass from the junior to senior division and then ultimately graduate, which students decided themselves when they were prepared to do so. So you can imagine with the perfect Black Mountain College student is the student that is never done learning. So very few graduate, very few students ever graduated from Black Mountain College. There were only a few dozen uh, that ever graduated. And students would basically, you know, determine that they had were ready to have a sort of strong general basis for the junior division education and ready to focus and pass on to the senior division. And when they presented themselves as prepared, they were given an examination, which was a set of eight to 12 fairly open questions. And I remember reading through some of these exams in the archives in North Carolina and just being utterly amazed and shocked by the breadth of the kind of questions that were being asked. So I remember a series of questions that said, you know, if you had a piano and were to build a felt cover for it, draw the shapes of the pieces you would need to cut. And then the next question would say, how do we solve race issues in America? And then the next question would say, you know, if you have a garden that you're planting for three seasons, what kind of crop rotation would you do? So you've got, you know, biology, you've got sociology, you've got politics, you've got industrial design all packed into this one question. Because what Rice and the other teachers at Black Mountain College were interested in was how critical thinking, how close looking, 
how an open engagement with knowledge in the world is cultivated. And that's ultimately what everything at Black Mountain College, you know, attempted to achieve. Rice builds this thing. And one of them, one of his goals is to build a school of democratic aims with the arts as kind of the heart or at least the kidneys of it. How did he come to the idea that the arts should factor into into his goals? You know, it's it's kind of a curious thing because Rice was not an artist. Rice actually didn't really know any artists. Like when he was seeking out to go find the first visual arts professors, he didn't really know where to go or who to turn to. So it's sort of surprising in some ways that the art should be so central. And I think that the key person there that we can point to in Rice's biography is John Dewey, who had published Art as Experience and who really identified art making as the most ideal means to be able to develop close looking and critical thinking, you know, that the series of decisions that one makes when one's going to set out to make a drawing, what's the paper going to be? What kind of mark making? Where are you going to put the first mark on the paper? How are you going to orient the paper that all of those very considered decisions have an incredible amount of freedom in them and an incredible amount of structure, and they have ramifications. And so you know, as Dewey had defined art making as the best sort of experiential education, I think Rice very much adopted that and made that one of the pillars of Black Mountain. It's amazing that Dewey's ideas can lead to two places, directly lead to two places as different as the Barnes Foundation and Black Mountain College. I don't, I don't, I don't quite know how that happens, but but he was involved with both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, I mean, Dewey's contacts there with cultural thinkers were just so vast. But, you know, I would say both Barnes and Black Mountain, although I have never thought necessarily of these two together, I mean, there's a certain kind of polymath on the one hand and a kind of embrace of the amateur's mode of exploring that I see that, I mean, I see there's a kind of kindred spirit between the two though they are such distinct kind of institutions and built up for entirely different aims. Yeah, I can I can imagine how like Dewey might be at the root. <laughs> One of the things that we kind of take for granted in studio art departments around the country and, and, and indeed, I guess, really around the world is that teachers, that artists teach, they teach students and artists make work and the teachers make work. And there's... There's kind of a circle there. They're not completely intermeshed, but there's certainly a relationship. How much of that model comes out of Rice and Dewey and Black Mountain College? How, how present was that model, say, in the 1920s or the 1930s in the U.S.? It's hard for me to, you know, speak across all art schools at the time. But what I would say is that they were much more along the model of a kind of European academy apprentice model, where there were, you know, a series of set courses and exercises that one went through and that there was a long period of kind of, you know, modes of copying and, you know, a kind of classical underpinning in the arts, in art school. That was sort of what art school was. So I would say that, but the, 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 essential thing at Black Mountain College, I think, is to remember that it was a not an art school, that it was a liberal arts school, and that it was the unique place that art was given within a liberal arts school at the very center of that education, 
that made the arts training a the most important at the school and b i think that inspired students to take from the arts what they would then bring into their other fields of study whether it be chemistry or biology or russian and that was i think a really sort of unique thing about black mountain college but i'm kind of missing your let me get back to your question the the most unique thing, I think every arts teacher at Black Mountain College did things differently. I think Joseph and Ani Albers are probably the sort of core first visual arts teachers that we think of. And it was both an incredibly important time for them as teachers and one of the most prolific times for them as artists. And they, many of the pieces that we see Joseph Albers making are works that came out of the very kinds of exercises he was doing with his students. So you know, subtle manipulations between 2 and 3D, and then we get Joseph Albers' Black Frame, which is the very first painting he made in the U.S., which is pulling apart the constituent parts of a picture and putting them on the page to think about how they relate to one another and how you can create a two- and a three-dimensional effect through really subtle modifications. So you kind of have this process where I think many of the exercises being done in the classroom were linked to the very thing that are the artists that were teachers were then exploring in their own work. And I think most importantly, there was just a great sense of time and an expanse and an availability of time for the teachers and for the students to do their work. And unlike, I think, the kind of, you know, committees and the administrative duties that burden so many professors today and so many teaching artists, it was a very different model there where, you know, Artists were working for very little, oftentimes no pay at all, just for room and board, but they were given a great sense of time and space to do their work, and it was was really prolific. You wrote several of the main essays in the book about how the school functioned, and we've been talking about some of those things. But you also wrote about theater piece number one, which was a happening that was performed by, sort of, Robert Rauschenberg, Franz Klein, Merce Cunningham, David Tudor and and John Cage. And it seems to me that that piece and how students were encouraged to observe it and chronicle it kind of gets at some of how the school operated, both in terms of what the thing was and kind of what, what the interactions at Black Mountain were like. So what was theater piece number one and, and does it kind of stand in for how the place functioned? Well, the great thing about theater piece number one is that it holds this utterly mythic status within art history as being the first happening, but we know so little about what actually happened. So, you know, the traces that we have are really minimal. We have just one page. I mean, from tangible evidence, we have one page from the score that John Cage gave the projectionist who was projecting a film. Uh, We have one page of this score. And we have some students at the time who had seen it writing notes about it in their journals. What's so incredible about those notes in the journals is that they're all conflicting and they all remember different things. And this kind of great incoherence of the memory of the event was built in, as I talk about in the book, built into the very structure of it. Because what John Cage sought to do in theater piece number one was to create a simultaneous incongruous events. And so... How it happened from what we can kind of piece together in people's memories is that one morning, John Cage and friends came down, ambled down to the dining hall for breakfast. They were sitting around having breakfast. They were talking. John Cage says, I want to do a concert tonight. 
would you guys like to participate? And people said yes. And what they were ultimately given was, we understand, a page of a score that said, you know, do your activity from 7.15 to 7.22, stop. Do your activity from 7.35 to, you know, 7.37, stop. And each of them did the activity that they were already doing. Summers Cunningham danced. Charles Olson and M.C. Richards read poetry. Robert Rauschenberg either played a phonograph record and or may have also suspended his white paintings from the ceiling. The student Nicholas Cernovich, an interesting filmmaker, probably projected one of his films. And John Cage read excerpts from some of his lectures and his writings. And so you had this, these things happening according to these scores that were not aligned in any way. So depending upon where you were sitting within the dining hall, and the chairs may have been set up in a circle with these kind of uh, triangles, you know, pointing inward to action, you would have seen a totally different thing. And your attention really would have been kind of distracted and focused on what was right near you while something else quite different was going on in another part of the kind of central stage space. So, and what Cage is being, is interested in here is really exploring the coincidences and the chance happenings of these simultaneous but unconnected um, modes of expression and events. And I think that what to me, what this piece points to at Black Mountain College was on the one hand, there's a great culture of self-entertainment there. These are college students. They are in rural North Carolina. Many of them have come from urban centers in the Northeast. There's nothing to do. So they create their own activity. There's great pictures of parties happening. There's costumes. And almost every night of the week, there was some kind of concert or dance. So there's this great sense of performing for each other and entertaining one another. And then the other thing I think that Black Mountain College, it opens up to is the way that it became this place where individuals from really all over the world were colliding for periods of time, sometimes as short as a week, um, sometimes as long as six years. And it was kind of this great happenstance of coincidence of all of these people being present at that one time. And it was this sort of self-perpetuating thing because everybody heard what an incredible experience one had had, you know, word got back up to Chicago or to New York City. And then the next summer, even more people would come down and it kind of created this great community of, of artists. And I would, I should also just add there, I think the openness of the audience to experience things that were really foreign and that struck me in reading students' journals is that they were constantly presented with new forms of expression. And their reaction was, oh, I didn't like that. Their reaction was, like, I remember this Frances Duplessis journal, you know, and she said, I don't know what I saw. You know, it didn't seem that important, but I do remember that Merce Cunningham got chased by a dog. So it was kind of this great sense of also experiencing the unknown and being okay with being uncomfortable with not understanding that I think was made it such a rich place for experimentation. The whole piece seems like a kind of a metaphor for a, a school and an experience where you might grow your own vegetables or build the school's buildings while you're there. Kind of an, 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 the imperative of multidisciplinary, of a multidisciplinary approach to, to everything and how enabling that could be. 
You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, Black Mountain was a liberal arts school and not only um, a school of painting and sculpture or whatever. Are there places that you see Black Mountain's legacy living on in American universities? I don't mean American art schools. I mean American university education. It was one of the most recurring questions that I got often from young people of what is the Black Mountain College today? Probably partly out of an aspiration of of going and attending there, because I think all of us sense the kind of utopianism of Black Mountain College, even though there is also the great sense of dystopian events that, that took place at Black Mountain. You know, it's it's been hard. I have thought a lot about this. I think that places that pop to mind are Bennington College, the kinds of close community, the smallness, the sense of movement between disciplines there that I have heard of from people who teach and attend sounds very you know, similar. I think a place like Goddard, which has a long history of a very kind of liberal, progressive education and environment. Many people from Black Mountain College, alums and so forth, went to Goddard to teach. So there's kind of a conduit there. Uh, There's an interesting school that I had never known about before I started working on this project called Berea in Kentucky, which is a Christian school, I believe. But um, students do not pay tuition there because they all take part in the very operations of the school. And they have a really prolific farm and a garden, from what I understand, You know, so there were, and also Warren Wilson in that same way are two Southern universities where students participate in the operations of the college to keep costs down. And they seemed like pretty radical models for that kind of self-sufficiency that I think Black Mountain College sought to attain. And then I think a place like Bard College, you know, and other schools where the arts are really at the center, kind of thinking of themselves as in the model of Black Mountain College, there are places that really hold up that mantle as well. And I think, you know, one can argue how much they do or don't match with what kind of vision one has of Black Mountain College. But certainly that bar came up a lot in conversations about this. And finally, I know you don't work at or teach at uh, The Ohio State University, but what is your understanding of how the school, the university, is embracing or using the exhibition you helped create? Yeah, so uh, Leap Before You Look is in its last tour venue at the Wexner Center for the Arts at Ohio State University. And it's an incredible ending for this show that has traveled the country because it is is there's going to be six classes that are taught out of the show at the university. And when I got the list of classes, what was I was most struck by is how they're not only taking place in the visual arts and the art history department, but there's a class that's um, listed in philosophy. There's a classics uh, professor who is also going to be teaching a class connected with Black Mountain College. And there's a series of dance courses that are going to also be in, in connection with the with the exhibition. So it's I mean, what I was so impressed with is how the faculty really embraced the museum and the show and were able to, you know, develop classes directly in dialogue with the material and out of it. And I would I can't wait to get my hands on the syllabus, um, the syllabi of all of those different classes, because I'm really curious, you know, what they picked up on. I know a lot of professors are using the exhibition catalog as the textbook for the class, which I think is really incredible testament to the book and a testament to kind of the school's, you know, embrace of the show. So 
it's, it's a really great ending. I wish I could be a fly on the wall in all of those classes to hear what kinds of things the, you know, students and the teachers come up with. Ruth Erickson, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.